opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Return the Jewels. Also, there's explicit language. Hi everyone, welcome to the sixth episode of Return the Jewels. Uh, this week, we have a really special guest. He's a friend of mine, a uh, very good comedian, a Haitian immigrant. Uh, his name is Tanael Joachin. I'm pretty sure I'm saying that right. Well, actually, I don't know, but I mean, I think I'm saying it better than I would have said it had we not talked about it. Um, the the interview you're about to see or hear, depending on if you're listening, as to, listening to us on all the major audio platforms or watching our YouTube, which is where we'd like you to be. So watch our YouTube because then you can see the difference in my face between this intro and the interview. You know, I have a whole ass greasy beard in the interview and now I just have a greasy face in this intro. But, um, you know, the, the episode's pretty good. We, um, you know, we, we talked about Trump, talked about race, immigration, uh, wait, let's see, we talked about, yeah, yeah a lot of, like white privilege, uh, you know, TJ is great because he's not just a contrarian in his comedy. He does a lot of, uh, there's a lot of substantive arguments in, uh, you know, the things he talks about. And you'll see, uh, actually, the, we do, like I do small talk with the guests before we actually start the interviews. And you'll see here, uh, I usually edit out the small talk, but I, I left a, I left the tail end of it in because that's when I press record and I'm just going to let it rock and let the interview rock and you'll see where like we do mark the interview or whatever. So anyways, uh, enjoy. I mean, I would think so. I mean, I, I don't, do you mean like actively, actively speaking to each other? Yeah, like, like it's not a dead language like Latin or something like that. I, I feel like it's a dead language that's just studied academically. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, but I don't know. And, but you know, like when I think about it, um, it is weird because when you think about people studying languages like that, you don't think about the people that look like the people who speak the language studying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually like just white PhD holders just doing that work, I guess, for the sake of it. But also, some of them they have a genuine interest in that culture and the the whatever comes with that. Having that knowledge gives you a certain like, oh, I'm I speak Sanskrit. I'm familiar with Sanskrit. Yeah, yeah, it's that kind of thing. You think it's just it's like um, appropriation aside. Do you think it's just another like? Uh, very unique token they get to trade in? A little bit, a little bit. I guess a lot of anything that's rare that you study, I feel like there's some sort of like token thing. Like I speak French, right? Yeah. And whenever girls here, whether it's white or black, they find out I speak French, they're like, oh, you should speak French. Cause just the idea of a black dude who speaks French is kind of rare in America. So it's, you immediately become a fetish or a token kind of thing. Oh my God! You um, yeah, that's just what it is. I mean, 
so okay let me let me just start since we're recording because okay. i want to get into the first segment and you'll see why i started uh okay so thank you for joining us tj uh or uh, tell me if i'm saying this wrong tanel joaquin tanel joaquin is fine yeah no no what's but, not i don't want fine i, I want you to tell me <laughs> what you want to hear it the way my mother would say yes please uh, it would be Tanael Joachim. Tanael Joachim. Yes. See that face you made? That's the face that I got my first six months in America. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to deal with this for the rest of my life. You this expect me to say <laughs> all of those words? <laughs> yeah, because it's a, it's a French last name. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's French, but it's also oh, there's Germanic origins to it. Yeah. So I Ameri anglicize it and I say Joachim. And then some people who have a Spanish background might say Joaquim because that's also a Spanish last name and it's pronounced that way in that language. Right. And Haiti is half and half. Yeah. Yeah. My half is uh, French dominated. The Dominican Republic is Spanish dominated. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, Joachim. There you go. Okay. That was perfect. That was perfect. Okay, great. I'm glad. So, <laughs> people that are watching this, you're on notice. If you ever see <laughs> Tanael in person. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it's, gotta, it's just got to be said. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, like, like I, uh, my last name is Agarwal, but mm -hmm. literally until now, I always just say Agarwal because it's phonetically easier. And I mean, it's not a difficult name. Uh, yeah, yeah. For for the anglicized language, it's not a difficult name because it's right there. But um, I I never introduce myself, and my last name is Love uh, like Agarwal. So, Agarwal or Agarwal? See. I, it, the way, Why do you pronounce the the R that's in there? So the way my growing up, it's always been Uggerwall, but the spelling is it varies for all the Uggerwalls. You know, like there, it's just, sometimes you'll see A G G A R or A G G R A or A G A R. You know. Yeah, I mean phonetically it trips you up because phonetically it sounds like it should be. Spell A G A R. Mm -hmm. But yours is spelled A G R A. And but the pronoun the pronunciation is the same, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah. growing up, growing up, it's always just been love agrawal. Yeah, I yeah. Introduce myself, and uh, I I never really give it two thoughts until when you do think about it. It's just like yeah, that's kind of messed up. And I know Subas is written A-G-A-R. Yeah, yeah. Does she have two G's? I can't remember. No, I don't think so. Yeah, but A G, uh, yeah, yeah. There's a slight, we have a slight spelling difference. Um, for people wondering, that's Suba Agarwal. She's a great comic. Great comic. Uh, L.A.-based currently, I think, but used to be New York-based. Yeah. Um, so the reason, like, we were warming up before and talking before, but the reason I wanted to start because we have a segment in these interviews we've been doing called 
tokenized or fetishized, where you give me a, a, like a personal anecdote or maybe a friend's anecdote or an event where you can articulate to us the distinction between tokenism or fetishism. And think on it for a second because I got to go pick up this food. All right. <laughs> I just heard the thing. All right. I'll be right back. Tokenize or fetishize? If you can think of like a personal anecdote or a friend's anecdote or an event in history where you can articulate to us the distinction between tokenism and fetishism, or like when you, at a point in time you were either tokenized or fetishized, and tell us why and what's the difference. Mm, okay, well, let's see. So when I think of tokenism, it's just, I think of one. We have one of that, then, oh, then the, the, the thing is met. If we're thinking about a culture or, because tokenism comes from a very limited idea of inclusion, I think. Yeah. Like, want to include these people, so we're going to be satisfied with one of them. Whoever that person is, they're going to represent that entire culture, which is a crazy amount of pressure on that fucking person's shoulders because how the fuck could I represent all of Haiti? I'm one Haitian with a very particular set of circumstances and a particular set of skills. So there's no way you could even do that. So it's, it's, it's crazy to even do it in the first place. And that just reminds me of, you know, South Park is so genius. Yeah. You know the black dude's name in South Park? Token. Yeah, Token it's Black. His last name is Black, Token Black. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, so, but they wrote him as a pretty decent character. It's a good character. The joke is just in the name, so I think it's fun. Uh, well, after the earthquake, there was some a lot of tokenism that happened. And whenever people found out I was Haitian, they would all of a sudden go, oh, how, how's your family? Which is good intentions. They would go, oh, I have a cousin who has a cousin whose girlfriend has been to Haiti. So they have to give you all of that to try to relate to you. And it's, it's all fine. It's none of it is offensive to me. It's just right. people trying their best to show you that they care. Okay. And uh, fetishizing... I don't know. I always think of that as a sexual thing. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Uh, so I get fetishized sexually when it... Most of the time, it has to do with language. When women find out I speak French, it's like, oh, you should speak French to me in bed. Let me uh, hear how it sounds. They say that? In oh, yeah, all the time, for sure, for sure. And uh, one time, I was at a party that was majority black Americans, right? And these two girls told me that I had African posture. And I, I made a post on Facebook about it just to find out what it meant. Yeah. And then it, it turned into this whole thing where people started fighting about what their definition is. And then, well, the one that I took away that seemed to be the most, uh, the closest, I think, to what, the definition would be based on what those girls said and the context in which they said it. Somebody said that uh, you just carry yourself with like uh, pride and just your shoulders aren't slumped up. You know, you just like walk around like you're not afraid of anybody. You kind of walk like you own the place. So like Nigerian posture. 
Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, they said African, but I guess <laughs> all of it. Since it's from the motherland, that's where the pride is from. So they basically said, that, yeah, we have African pasha. It's funny that you said Nigerian pasha. So you've heard a version of that? Uh, no, no, I'm just uh, like, I, I had a Nigerian professor and then a couple of like uh, Nigerian first generation friends. And um, it always seems like their parents are more intense than our parents in terms of like- Oh, incredibly intense. Yeah, incredibly so intense. it's like, so uh, it's always, it's just always fun to like poke fun at- It's a culture of overachievers. Nigerians <laughs> think they're the best people on the planet. They do so much. They don't care about anybody else. Right? We are the fucking best. <laughs> they have it's good it's good and bad it creates incredible high expectations but it's also good because it makes you you're driven yeah yeah you know i wonder what it is you think it's a so do you think it's like a survival thing on the uh parents generation that that are immigrants like that kind of mentality it's like okay i had to do so much to survive so i have to make sure that you won't have to do so much you know, or, or that you do extra now so that you won't. Yeah, there's, there's definitely an aspect of it that's for sure survival. Mm -hmm. But there's also an aspect of it that I think is just something that's specific to that culture. Okay. Some cultures aren't driven to be overachievers, even though they have to survive. If, even within immigrant societies, you can, there are immigrants who just drive themselves towards certain things more than others because if you think about it nigerians or, or caribbeans or any other type of africans they, if they come to america they come with the goal of bettering life and surviving but if you look at the the results and the outcomes it's not usually the same even though the goal is the same so some of it has to do with a specific culture i think nigerians might be more driven by some other cultures. And that doesn't mean Nigerians are better than other cultures or worse than, it's just they value certain things that other cultures don't value. Right. And that's why it gets tricky when you talk about uh, racism and different cultures because people have this idea in their head that in a perfect world, everybody putting in the same amount of work, then the outcomes would be the same for everybody. No. And that's just not the reality of life. No, because I think, um, yeah, like you were saying, it's your culture and how you grew up with and what was culturally prioritized. Um, yeah. Like, I feel like in America, we prioritize confidence. So we export. Oh, God. We're just like, we export uh, basically confident people as just for executive work. Like an unnatural amount of confidence too. It's just it's the kind of confidence where like you have nothing to back it up. Yeah, we're a Kruger dining factory. <laughs> I mean Trump became president straight up off of confidence. That's all it was. No skills. I mean some skills. He's kind of entertaining. But in terms of being a politician, it was mostly confidence. That's yeah. all it was. I'm a businessman. You need a good businessman in the White House. That's right. That's right. Right, yeah, he seems like he's got it under control, so. Trump is a very, very prototypical American. He's clearly he, what uh, that is. Uh, I used to talk about this with my friend, uh, that he is the, um, he's the, the white's top man. He's the top white man. 
he's a model for the top white men. Ta-Nehisi Coates had a piece in the Atlantic that he called the first white president. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading that. He, he talked about how it was like a blood sacrifice. To get <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. That's uh, fucking crazy. I'm trying to link that. It was such a... Oh my God, that guy is such a good writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's like, great. He's so precise. Um, yeah. Have you been fetishized? What's that like for you? Let me um, turn the tables on you real quick. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... First of all, I don't want to think... I don't think it's fully a sexual thing, being fetishized. I think it's also like a desirable thing. Like, oh, that's exotic. And it's like, a, I have a desire to... So, yes, it feeds into tokenism, but I think... With tokenism, it's like I can I can get the use out of you. With uh, fetishize, it's like oh, this is something foreign to me or different, and I need it. I desire it. Um, mm. Tokenism is like I I'm doing this with a purpose, uh, using or manipulating. So fetishized, like um, yeah, I mean it, it, I went to law school in Arkansas, you know. Okay. So, um, right. One of a few Indians, one. Right, right. And it, it, except for the international students at like the engineering school and all that stuff. Uh, okay. But uh, yeah, I was an Indian with uh, a white boy accent. And so that would just, um, that'd be weird and disarming for a lot of people. And so. Right. You know, they were hoping you would speak like a 7-Eleven cash register guy. Yeah, and then like they just they didn't expect me to be um, kind of like an average achiever, <laughs> and so that kind of fucked people up. And uh, I feel like a couple of people were like kind of drawn to me in an unnatural way. Uh, and so you know, it's always been weird. Um, it's always been very weird. But um, that's why I thought of this segment, you know, really because it's like it's like I don't know if this energy that I'm getting is to use my brown face to co-sign some idea or is it uh oh that i don't get that in my you know yeah yeah life. yeah it's an interesting dilemma to have it's an interesting dilemma yeah i don't i don't know if many people even think about it. i mean i don't know i'm sure this has got to be common i know i'm sure you've had the exact same thoughts. oh all the time and and you know I, I wanted to comment on this one thing you just said about like you had uh, you said average ambition, is that what you said? Yeah, I mean, I was just kind of an average student in school, but maybe slightly below average because I didn't yeah. um, I didn't get good grades. Right, and how did that uh, get received at home? Uh, well, I, I mean, at this point, this is law school, so, you know, my parents okay. know that I had set the bar low for them, and, you know, I was not, I was in a whole other town, they're not stereotypically Indian in terms of you gotta I mean, Yeah, but I, you know, I'm also the youngest and uh, I'd kind of been setting the bar low for- Okay. Uh, and so I think at that point, um, I don't think they ever saw my law school grades. I, I think it was just kind of like, yeah, you know. I'm gonna... Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting thing, Ben, because I mean, it happens with immigrants, but it happens in general to all kinds of people where especially people that have been oppressed on some level, where there's this thing where you try to use ambition as worth. 
does that make sense? Like you yeah. strive for excellence just so you could feel like you belong to fight the oppression. Whereas you can just be an average person and still feel worthy because you're here. That should be enough. Like your ambition shouldn't be the thing that makes you feel like you deserve a seat at the table. Yeah, but then again, now do you believe in generational trauma? I do. I mean, I don't like the way it's been uh, talked about, but I do think there are things that you can pass down to your children for sure. Because I mean, the reason. But also, it's a, it's a for me, it's a it's a paradox because there's value in it, but I also think it's up to the individual to make something of themselves and not necessarily blame what they're. Because I, sometimes I feel like people. Like, get off your ancestors' dick sometimes. Just let them go. <laughs> they lived their life. They did what they had to do. They suffered. And they gave you something. Now it's your turn to take it and do whatever you want with it. You can just blame them or, like, have them go, oh, look at what I did. You should be proud of me. They're dead. They don't care. Just let them live. Do you, you. be proud do of me. <laughs> right. That's like when people go, my... <laughs> Right. I'm my, I used to see this black t-shirt that I thought was corny as hell where people go, I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams. Have you ever seen this t-shirt? No, but I mean, I've seen the sentiment. Yeah, and it's like, fuck out of here. Your ancestors aren't thinking about you. Just be proud of you. Keep them out of this shit. <laughs> it's, it's insane, man. Oh, man. That's, uh, oh, man, that's so funny. Okay, because the reason I ask about generational trauma is like do you think maybe that is what pushes the um the push for ambition like yes. i know that ambition is hardwired into us across ethnicities but we're you know who we are people that are uh, uh i'll get i'll get there later but ambition is hardwired into us and you think do you think it comes from like generational trauma it's like having to develop this you know um, resistance and so yeah. i gotta put this into my kids so that yeah yeah i i think that's a nice narrative and i remember i was watching this interview with uh the girl who created the shy what's her name she's a lesbian she's hot right now in hollywood uh, Le lena wait maybe no lena wait right and uh she was saying that Black excellence is a result of generational trauma. Okay. Like you only strive to be good because of the trauma of racism and the feeling of worthlessness that your ancestors had. And I think as nice as that sounds, I just don't think it's valid or true because there are tons of black people that aren't excellent or don't strive to be excellent. So does that mean they didn't have the same trauma that you had or it didn't work for them the same way? I think across any given culture, you're going to have different sets of people. And it's some individuals, whether or not they were traumatized, they're going to strive for excellence. That's just yeah. what they are. That's just what they like. And then some individuals are just going to be cool with just, I'm average and that's fine by me. I just want to live and find interesting things. I don't need a specific purpose in my life to feel like I matter. So, okay, this is, you know, bear with me on this. You, okay. 
the, the narrative of uh, the so the narrative of black excellence coming from generational trauma, but the pushing of black excellence maybe uh, maybe purposely or maybe coincidentally mm-hmm. trying to limit or omit the exposure of black averageness. Right. Right. So that as a thing, do you think it's like an overcorrection of all the negative stigma and representation of black throughout the history? So now this is like a and absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's like there's no room for black averageness, which to me is all is that's the ultimate sign of racism to me. I should be able to average and be fine. Yeah. Because other people get to be average and fine. I mean, especially white people. Yeah. So, like, I wouldn't need to be Dave Chappelle to get treated like Dane Cook. I don't have to have that level of talent just to be in that space. Yeah, like, every, pretty much every movie or every action movie you see, you see an average white guy rise to extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. But then, if it's a black action hero, it's an extraordinary black person. It's like Denzel Washington, yes. super yes. trained Marine, but now he's on his vacation. Right, right. So I, I don't know. I just don't think it's a healthy narrative, man. You want people to be themselves and you want people to feel like they matter without having to have the kind of gift that's needed to excel. There's not a million Jay-Zs in the world. No. You can't tell every black kid that they have to be Jay-Z to feel like they're worthy. Mm-hmm. That's bullshit. That's fucking toxic. Because yeah, then all the people <laughs> had worked with would be as rich as crazy. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think inequality is unfortunately woven into human nature. Yeah. We're not all equals. That's just what it is. I mean, I, I guess we're, we're kind of like um, we're kind of like a pack species, and you yeah. acts are hierarchies. I just read, right. literally just read about a stampede. 13 people died in a stampede because they were breaking up some party for breaking quarantine. Holy shit, where? I, no, I gotta look this up. That's some uh, Black Friday type of shit. Yeah, yeah, it was like, uh, stampede. Sounds like, a, well, would that be California or Georgia? I'm gonna bet on those two states. I, I don't know if it was this country. Let me see. Uh, oh, okay. For foreign news. Where do you want to? Yeah. Where do you want to guess? It was. You know, I I'm gonna go with Europe right now. No. 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 Asia. No. Because I wouldn't even think of Africa. Because there's not a lot of COVID news coming out of Africa. No. It's not. South America. Yeah. Lima, Peru. Oh shit! Okay. Wait, shit. Was it? Was this whole thing we did where I was making you guess super fucking insensitive? No. Why would that be insensitive? I don't know, cause I see the walks have gotten <laughs> to you, man. That's what it is. Just... You don't want to live in that world where every single thing you naturally do and it's fine, it's got good intentions behind it. All of a sudden, you're not questioning it. Was that insensitive? No, why the fuck would that be insensitive? I have no idea. <laughs> We're playing a geography game. And like, I, I, I hate this world we're building, man. This world where every single thing can be interpreted by somebody as like, that is insensitive, that is offensive. 
anything you do somehow is offensive to someone. Yeah. No, I think um, the problem is that we have no quality control filter. Like the people who have, who are very vocal with these opinions, they'll never let you contextualize their opinion based on their own personal history. It's like, oh yeah, well, you know, this guy also got a seven DUIs when he was 16. He's shown yeah. this judgment, but yeah, <laughs> he's here talking about why you should <laughs> open up the schools. It's like, no. Yeah, yeah. But then there's an argument that can be made. What has happened between all the DUIs and who is now? Did he get a chance to improve himself? Did he get a chance to become a better person? Well, does that mean the DUIs cancel out his voice forever? Will he ever be someone that we can listen to, even though he made some terrible mistakes in his past? No, that it, no, that's just the grain of salt we take his opinion with. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it's just like let it color, let it color how it colors things. If he's going to introduce an idea into the free market of ideas, then perhaps the opinions about his character, the impeachable uh, character evidence about him should hold the same value as his opinion because his yeah. opinion should hold the same value as the expert's opinions. So then where do we draw the filter? Do we have right. to go out of our way if we are ethical to protect somebody who is being reckless with their uh, opinion crafting? Mm -hmm. It's, it's just tricky. It's very tricky because The part where it bothers me is when you go after like people's opinions aren't that weighty to my life. They don't mean too much to me, but I would never try to get someone's livelihood taken away because they have the wrong opinion. If you do something criminal, then by all means, based on the laws of society, go to fucking prison and pay your debt to society because of that thing you did. Right. But if we hope to live in a world of free exchange ideas and just people can have free conversations where, where people are open to arrive at the truth, where people sometimes might get offended, then I'm willing to sit down and listen to someone's opinion, even if I disagree with it. You know what I mean? Like, you, we can't all just live in a bubble of only people that feel and think and say the exact same things we feel and think and say. That's not conducive but, to anything. That's not conversation. And and I understand where you're coming from, and I agree with you. But do you not do you see a pattern of people touting the opposite of that ideal, but shrouded in that ideal, saying like, "Oh, well, you don't believe in free speech. We're just trying to have a debate." But really what they're doing is they're using the sheer force of their, you know, platform and maybe toxic followers. To be hateful right. and racist sometimes. Right. Yes. It's just like, oh, that we're just trying too. to have an open debate and dialogue. Right. So right. Uh, and I, now, now it's gonna have to be up to the uh, audience member or the speak the spectator, the listener to make their own decision based on like what that person is saying. So I don't know if, if we can uh, like make a laws about what people can say or cannot say. If it's a private thing, like I can choose to not hire someone right. based on stuff they've said before. That's my right as an individual 
in a free society for sure yeah i mean yeah if it's private enterprise you can't but but you know you can't not hire somebody based off of like religious or racial or sexual exactly exactly if it's something they said and if it's like tied into well this is my religious belief then you know but the i see the the left goes too far when they try to demonize people that do not believe exactly the same things that they believe okay. and and it doesn't have to be something very like strong it could be something as basic as oh i think there's only two genders like you could get in severe trouble for saying that right now mm -hmm. because the movement of gender has gotten so strong where everybody now has to say there's an unlimited amount of them right because you can be incidentally uh insensitive as i was yeah. kind of being earlier maybe yeah yeah and then you you create this this those little tricks like there's words now where like people just don't feel comfortable saying them because they know there's something that's attached to it like i was talking to a friend the other day and she, she was having a regular size conversation and then she goes, oh, you know, I have one of my patients who's transgender. Like she just whispered that real quick. Like, why are you afraid to say that? What's going on that we, like we instinctively know this is where we might get in trouble. We can't be vocal about that one. You know what I think? I think, I feel like our, um, what do you call it? Our, uh, uh, so I was just reading the messages. Um, Fani, you can join. Yeah, whoever's there can join, man. He's just uh, sitting back. <laughs> uh, you were just well, I don't want to just interrupt you guys. That's you know, fine. I mean, I, I'm going to edit this. I crop out your screen when you ask. Yeah, this will make it more fun. Look, three people now. Look at that. What's up, man? Hey, DJ. How's it going, man? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Fani's our research guy, our producer you know, behind, behind the scenes. And so uh, naturally he's way more shy than I am. So it's a good fit how we're getting all this in. He doesn't seem shy so far. Well, it comes and goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's been sitting there watching us for 30 minutes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so well, what were you just saying? Fuck, because I had a point. Yeah, I was talking about the self-censorship that people already do oh, right. because they know there are topics that will get them in trouble because right. that's how the world works now. Okay, so, so self-censorship, do you think that like we were talking earlier about how there's no delineation between the values of things, do you think that like being offended by a clerical error in rhetoric, which, you know, they have these huge debates on, people are starting, the problem is people are valuing that as like the same as literal oppression. We're like transgender people can't exist in public because- Correct, correct. Like the bathrooms, all of that. Yes, shit. yes. Like, I, I think uh, that's almost, we're making category errors, right? Okay. Because now if you spend enough time on Twitter, you'll see this sort of narrative that speech or language is violence. Mm. 
And well, I mean, I guess I kind of understand that, but where uh, contextualize it with how you're exp or, or explain it your way. Well, basically, there are things people feel like you should never say because that's akin to using physical violence. Okay. For instance, okay, let's say I miss, okay, let's say a, a, a woman, somebody that looks like a woman comes to me and I go, she, right? Yeah. But that person is non-binary and they identify as they, or I don't know which other pronouns they've invented. Do you know so, that beforehand at this time? And no, no, I didn't. Okay, so you... Right. right, so I go with my two human eyes on thousands of years of evolution that <laughs> tell me this is either male or female, right? And then I go with what I see, and that person now is offended because I did not respect their self-identification. Right. And But the thing is, your self-identification is self this is you. It does not affect the larger world that I live in. Now, if you were to come up to me and go, my pronouns are this and that, and that's how I identify, I would prefer if you would refer to me by those things. Now I have the right to do that. And as a decent human being, that's what I should do. Right. And then if you do it again, then it's willful. Right. Then it could be a willful, like, like um, I just don't want to use pronouns like that which is kind of a dick move. That's an asshole thing. So then you identify yourself as a dick as opposed to a cop where you just made a mistake. Exactly, exactly. But then I think there's no room for mistakes anymore. Yeah, okay. So there is no room for mistakes anymore. And I don't want to sound insensitive or anything, but it's not like, sometimes- Please, please sound insensitive. That's exactly <laughs> what I want. You already did it. Like, yo, did I miss a memo or something? Because I've been in that situation you've been in. And I had no idea about the pronouns until it was brought to my attention. Yeah, I, it's it's a very recent thing. That's but nobody talks about it really. Like, there's no mass like email going out saying, "Hey, this is happening now." People talk about it. I mean, people talk about it in certain places. Like, if you're the average American in the Midwest, you're living your life, you just want to put food on the table. You don't know about pronouns, right? It's a very liberal your, elite. Your kids do. Yeah, it's a liberal elite thing. Tell me, what was your situation? In, in school, it happened in college, and I was in New York City at the time, and I was just, you know, okay, maybe it was my fault because sometimes I walk around with my head in the clouds anyway, but uh -huh. I didn't even know that these pronouns existed. And yeah. it was with me, you know, like when I was talking about whom I thought was her, and it was a day, it kind of, it, that was the first time I was just like, whoa, that, you know, you, you, like I read about it maybe before, but I didn't actually, like, how, how can you really tell? No. Yeah, yeah. What's that person? You meant? cannot tell. There's no way to tell. No. So it's, it's just like an uncomfortable situation all around, I feel, and without offense, like without wanting to offend anybody, you just say something that yeah. means like, something you just you know you just refer to someone and right right it becomes offensive all of a sudden and it's just like and the part of it that is a little tricky for me and love i guess you can give me the other perspective on that is it becomes tricky because uh sometimes i can't tell the difference between when somebody is legit trying to feel good in their 
identity and they want you to politely respect that identity or when someone is just being a raging narcissist and they feel like they want to live in a world that's different from actual reality and they invent these things and then they want you to refer to them by those things it really it's really hard to tell the difference between those two i think um i think initially we should always you can either be right or be kind choose to be kind so give people the benefit of the doubt up top but if they're proving themselves to be a raging narcissist that'll come with subsequent behavior you know um but like give them the benefit of the doubt i give everyone the benefit of the doubt up top but don't uh don't extend that patience for a long time yeah yeah and i also don't like the trick that we do now well not we but that that culture the woke culture cuz really that's the thing that bothers me where they just add the word phobia at the end of anything and then all of a sudden you the you a terrible person you a monster like i made a simple mistake all of a sudden i'm binary phobic or i'm transphobic or i'm misogynist or i'm whatever like the rules have changed completely and none of us know what these rules are so the mere mention of a thing now makes me a bigot so here's the thing that i want to talk about with that was like so well, kind of what we're getting at is like the policing of language the policing of rhetoric right using certain terms and how using certain terms are violence in themselves but do you feel like there are uh i don't want to say the woke people or whatever but do you feel like it's kind of maybe statistically white people that use this language as violence to occupy the agent the space of like agency for transgender issues to kind of clutter up the space whereas like now we can't really talk about the actual violence happening against like black and brown transgender right people you know because we're we're talking about uh tiptoeing around rhetoric whereas you know it's like they're literally enacting all these policies to 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 devalue and disappear you know black and brown transgender people and um you know that i don't i don't know and and i don't want to assume that like with discussions things are a zero sum trade off because that is ignorant as fuck so like i don't mm-hmm. you know i i don't know if it's cluttering up that space or that agency or maybe it gets more attention that the just like the language choices we use like we think about pronouns more than we think about the oppression uh part but but then again perhaps right. i'm pushing a logical fallacy for right now which i'm not recognizing you know yeah yeah i mean i think what happens is the superficial stuff takes so much of the conversation then the real stuff is just not even important anymore nobody cares about it like pronouns or language latin x or spelling women with an x yeah or folks spelling that with an x that's nearly as that's not important to me or to real women really it's important to a fringe group of people that want to control language what's important is the rights that people want to have the freedoms that those people want to have and that's what we should be focusing on 
but I feel like we're focusing on the wrong things because these people are so loud they control the conversation. It's it's not it doesn't make it doesn't help anyone that women is spelled with an X. That doesn't do anything for any woman that I know. Yeah. What's the point of that? It's performative. It used to be uh, when when I did debate in high school, it used to be women with a Y. But I guess Yeah, that, that is also a thing. I guess it's just because like I think was it is it because of the chromosomes that you can't I don't know. Also, what if it is the logic behind how you spell a word? <laughs> it's fucking crazy. But I didn't want to, you know, take this conversation in this place. We wanted right. to talk about colonialism, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I okay. So, but but okay, we could shift to colonialism of language, and you know, like whitewashing history and that kind of thing. You know, even when I'm like. Uh, I'm doing research. I'm doing research. I'm Wikipediaing history of Haiti, and and I look at things, and I'm just like, oh well, the way that this is presented to me, it's probably leaving out a lot of opinions and yeah. you know, expressions. It's like it crosses yeah. over things, and you know, I'm sure the people that were native to the land or the people that lived there forever didn't feel the same way <laughs> as these editorial choices. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but I guess talking about language uh, in the sense that, that not, not, okay, not in the sense of policing it, but just the cluttering of language so much that there is very, very little value. Like the value in the precision of your diction has gone down significantly because that value now is trained uh, now is translated into your delivery how you deliver the passion with which you deliver the confidence you know yes. confidence that kind of stuff so what do you it's what do you pre think? presentation and zero substance okay and yeah. and you not that i'm throwing any shade to comedians or anything but you are in you are in the comedy world. You are an established yes. comedian. You have a special out, Son of Haiti. Or, or uh, should I say special hour album? It's an album. It's an album, yeah. Okay. So you have an album out available on iTunes and all platforms for everybody. All of them. All yeah. platforms. Please download it. But so being in the comedy world, how much and and I you know, I already know kind of the answer to this, but how much do you see like seeing people rise from maybe not having put in the time to learn the craft, you know, to being validated and recognized, people rising from that just by their delivery and flash in the pan as opposed to the substance of, and then you see like a lot of people who can't ever, like I see a lot of writers die by the pen that just can't ever break through, but that they're brilliant. They always find the angle on something. They always, yeah you know but um so so knowing that how do you feel about how do you feel about that that it's not i okay. i fucking hate it yeah. i hate it so much <laughs> i really do just because it, it speaks to the shallowness of, of capitalism okay and and the the, the culture because at the end of the day uh artistry has to meet with the corporate world and the corporate world does not give a fuck about art unless it can make money off of it. Right. That's all it is. 
So if you are some guy, you do, you do some like you some tap dancing, and that works for Netflix because people are into it. The attention span is very slow now. It's 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 so short. It's it, there's no need for substance. You go on TikTok and then you do a 10 second thing and people love it, and that's what works. Fuck everybody who's crafting jokes mm-hmm. with thought yeah. and good concepts and originality and idea. They don't care about those people because that's not what's making money right now. It's Larry the Cable Guy. Yeah. So then you have to make a decision with your own integrity. Like, what am I in this for? What do I care about? And if you consciously can go, I don't care about integrity anymore. I don't care about substance. I'm just going to do what is popular just so I can make some money. If you make that decision, that's your decision. I'm fine with it. Some people can make that decision. I don't know if I can. I don't think I have that ability. But some people make it and it works for them. And then there's the other people who kind of still respect the the craft and the the artistry. It's the thing that gives them a sense of meaning. And then they keep doing that. They might have to do do it longer in, in obscurity. Yeah. Because their thing takes a little bit longer to reach people to become marketable. And you suffer, but I, I just hate it, man. It's it's just such a shitty business. I um yeah, no, I agree with you. I think uh the opposite of that, um, or somebody that it did take long for that focuses on the craft, like it shows because you know I was the only, really the only comedy special that I've been able to finish in the last like couple of years on Netflix that I don't just tune out of. And that includes like all the Dave Chappelle specials. I haven't finished all of them. Holy shit, I, yeah. No, I really hate that I said that. I literally haven't, I've sat down in one sitting. I've watched Sam Jay's special twice. Nice. And nice. it's like, it, it, and I don't even notice like the time you mm-hmm. or like, I don't even think to turn it away. And, and there's something about that. It's like, she's, you know, she's super serious. She's like, she's very serious about her work and it shows, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you'll see her at yeah. like, you'll see her at like, well, before COVID, you know, you'll see her at some like rinky dink bar doing shows where she's got all these accolades and she's on the national stage, but like, she's working, she's getting stage time, you know? That's right. And you uh, gotta work. It shows. And like, you have to work. Yeah. And, and, and like, I can only, I, I don't know what's going on in her head, but, you know, I can only imagine the satisfaction of feeling like, okay, the long route hit. Or I can only, I'm only assuming, I'm assuming the special hit, you know, because it was good. I mean, I would, it's definitely a hit. I think it's great. I enjoyed it. So it's tough to say which one is more satisfying definitely if you if you want to go for the long route mm-hmm. and put the time in and get the accolades and the respect until you come out and the world accepts it that's great but while you're going through it it's not pleasant cuz you you broke and then you you full of envy cuz you watch people that aren't better than you doing better than you all of those feelings or out there in your head. So while you're going through it, it's not fun. But I can imagine it's pretty fucking satisfying to to put in the work and then your stuff is out and people treat it with the respect that it deserves. So the reason I say that is because 
you are a person that uh, spends your energy crafting jokes, you know, people talk about your point of view, like I, I've read, like, not read, but audience reviews, I know you share them sometimes, and people uh-huh. talk about, but it's just like, oh, wow, what a refreshing perspective. Oh, interesting point of view. It's like, right. it's not so much about, I love how he made me laugh when he said this thing. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. I never thought of it like that before. And I've been thinking about that for days. Wow. So, so being somebody who does that and knowing a, or, or, or co- comprehending the thought of the satisfaction of like, like, yeah, like the, the, the feedback you received, you just put out your album, what, a few months ago? The, right before yeah, yeah, quarantine? April. In April. April, yeah. yeah. So like right at the height of quarantine. And so the feedback, what, like, what was your sense of satisfaction? Uh, it, was, it was definitely something like pleasant. It's very pleasant because I got what I wanted to hear which is because sometimes you do stuff and then people say, hey, they just give you a generic, very generic type of compliment, right? It's like, oh, this is, oh, this is funny. This is great. I was like, cool. And then sometimes you find the kind of people that go, oh, and then they go very specific about it. And they tell you this thing, like, oh, this is what this did for me. And that's what you're looking for because look, here's the, the God honest truth, right? There's a million comedians in New York City and a lot of them are very funny. There isn't a lack of funny people in New York. Now, there's a difference between just being a funny person and being someone that's interesting enough that you leave an impression or an audience. And I find that a little bit more interesting if you want to stand out. Yeah. Because... You know, sometimes you go to a show and then there's three, four people, they're all fucking killing. And as soon as you leave the room, you forget what they were talking about because it's just trifling everyday stuff. Yeah. And then somebody comes on and then they start talking about something and you're like, huh, okay. Something different is happening here and I'm kind of in tune for that because I want to hear what that person has to say. And I'm going to think about it before I go to sleep and when I wake up. That's right. It's going to be like the, the the bits that are like earworms are the ones yeah they just stay with you so something about them stays with you so that okay that is your drive to achieve yes feeling I think it's yeah yeah where does that come from if you uh, where does it come from I I mean because you could you could come up with a catchphrase and put on <laughs> some like flashy shirt. <laughs> And yeah, make some, we can make a web series. I'll film it. You know, right, right. <laughs> I don't know where it comes from. I'll, I'll say this: the people that my first inspirations in comedy were not just funny, but they were interesting. So I think that trickled down to me in wanting to not just be funny, but also being interesting, hmm. like. Uh, the guy that really did it for me before I even started doing it or even really was completely aware of what stand-up comedy was, was uh, George Carlin. Okay. Are you familiar? I'm sure oh, you Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, what, what, uh, around what year was this or what age were you? 
uh, well, I had just moved to America. I was uh, 22. No, 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 I was 21, 20, 21. Okay. Yeah. I remember I was in college, right? I was uh, f first, like, first year and a half in America. I was about to sleep with this girl, right? And my move was, at the time, Cat Williams. That was around 2008, 2009. Cat Williams was huge. Yeah. And I loved Cat Williams. I think he's brilliant. But I don't think I could do what Cat Williams does just because of the difference in our natures. Because Cat Williams is a super energetic. He just, he just, he's like a little monkey up there. He jumps around. He hums the stool. He's sweating. He's just, he's the king of act outs. He does so many act outs. So I like that. I just didn't see myself in that. So I invite this girl over and I said, let me play some comedy for you. So I put on uh, the Pimp Chronicles with the green pimp suit with yeah. the big cup. Yeah. You remember that one? <laughs> so I put that on and it's playing and she was like, oh, this is cool, but I have something for you too. Let me show you something else. And then she put on George Carlin. And I think the specific bit was this bit about the Ten Commandments. Okay. Yeah, he was like basically breaking down the Ten Commandments, how redundant and repetitive they are. Basically, you could boil it down to two commitments. And it was funny, and I have a religious background. So seeing someone talk about religion with such praise and courage was fucking amazing to me. And I got so into it that I forgot I was trying to fuck that girl. I spent the rest of the <laughs> night just watching George Carlin clips. It's she ended up going home after that. I was like, oh, I don't care about your pussy anymore. I think I found my dream. This is what I want to do. Carlin over Webb. Yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> and to me, that's, that, that's really what it is because he was a little bit more... And this is not a conversation between who's a better comedian. That's not at all, because I think they're both great in their own rights. But he spoke to me in a way that Cat Williams didn't, even though I thought Cat was brilliant. Does that make sense? Were you a comedian at this time? No. I was thinking, I would, the dream, the seeds were there, but I didn't have the courage to do it yet. Mm. Yeah. I was in college. Yeah, I was a college student and I was studying business management and I was like improving my English and just sort of adapting to America because I had moved in uh, August 2008. Yeah. But, um, so is this like um, moving? Was this like a path that you had seen in your family much before? Or are you like a pioneer or? Uh, uh, well, how would you no, describe? No, the path is there. There's a pretty strong immigration community right. in Haiti where uh, actually a lot of our economy is money transfer. You guys do like, you know, you send Western Union to family back home. So I have a lot of cousins. I have aunts and uncles who are here. So it was an option, but it really materialized like in high school where I thought, okay, I think I want to go and study in America. So I, I did the application. I took the, the SAT in Haiti. I, uh, I sent a bunch of stuff to DHL, you know, sending all your application and the checks for the college. And I got a half scholarship 
to this school in Long Island called Adelphi University. And then through that, I was able to get an I-20, which is the student visa. It's an F-1 visa. It's like 10 years, right? No, no, that one is until you graduate. Oh, okay. So I got it for four years, 2008 to 2012, yeah. Were you born here? Yeah. What about your, remind me of your name again? I mean, uh, Fani. Fani, were you born here too? No, I wasn't born here. I actually moved here when I was uh, 11 years old from India. Oh, okay. So you're kind of familiar with a little bit of the immigration process. Maybe not the college student part of it, but immigration in general. Yeah, I'm more familiar with it than love, I guess. But honestly, as a kid, I just naturalized. So. Yeah, yeah. You didn't have to do any, like, Pledge Allegiance or any of that as a kid? When I first moved here, we were doing the Pledge of Allegiance and stuff, even in school. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, uh, no, I'm talking about, because I know when somebody becomes a citizen of America, oh, you yeah. have to go to an office and then swear and then pledge allegiance. Yeah, I went through that experience. Okay. <laughs> Do you have the, um, I was talking about this with Dre on a previous episode, you know, Andre. Um, Thompson? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was talking about how the older immigrant generation likes to hold, um, the immigration scars, the oh, yeah. immunization scars over, or like over your head. Do you yeah. have those? Uh, you don't, well, hold show on. Them. don't show them, but do you have them? I have that one, which is the vaccination thing that every Haitian could get. Oh, but it's not like, usually like the scars, or the, maybe that was just what they used uh, decades. What kind, what kind of scars? It, that okay. might be for Ellis Island immigrants. That's I don't think that's for us. Yeah, no, for people that are just born outside of the country, when we were younger, I think we had like a polio vaccine or something. Yes, before. yes, I have those. Yeah. Yeah. Polio, tuberculosis, and MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella. Because I know that like the older generation, um, maybe that immigrated here in like the 80s, 70s, they have giant these giant immunization scars. It's like oh. it is depressed and it's like an oval. Mm, I'm not familiar with those, no. They just got branded as immigrants? <laughs> <Yeah>, essentially. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially you're getting branded. <laughs> Sounds fucking crazy. That's maybe maybe that's why they're all anti-vaxxers now. Well, they're not really. <laughs> <laughs> that would be considered violence now, you know? Mm. <laughs> Maybe uh, yeah. Maybe maybe QAnon is carrying the torch with the anti-vaxxing, so that like when they actually do fuck with vaccines, it's like, hey, we did all of this civil unrest work for you guys. This <laughs> QAnon, what a load of crap! <laughs> now they're represented at the highest level of government: New York City Police Commissioner and the President. This shit is wild, man. It's so funny. Um. Uh, yeah, so that's my uh, comedy origin story. That's where it all started with that mindset. Mindset. You, you found George Carlin. And yeah. so I guess going back, that's knowing that you can be abrasive and truthful and seeking the satisfaction you can get from that mm -hmm. is what drives you to do what now, what, 13 years? How many years have you been doing this? No. Oh, comedy? Comedy is eight. I've been in eight. America for 12. I've been doing comedy for eight. 
eight years. So for eight years being driven by the, the Carlin sound, not yeah. like you could argue that Cat Williams is uh, more palatable to the audience, you know, in, in just like the act outs and the stuff he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, um, yeah. Like, like when I think of Cat Williams bits, it doesn't, it doesn't fuck me up. But like, you know, I'll think about like, oh yeah, weed comes in a plastic bag. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's an interesting observation. But you know, yeah. like George Carlin, it's like, here's the seven words you can't say. I kind of, mm -hmm. think, okay, these, these are the kind of things that creep with you and just kind of. Yeah, yeah, they stay. They, they become a part of the, the lexicon and just the general culture and language of comedy. But also there's a distinction that I think is important because a lot of people think when you do the kind of comedy, like I don't I even I don't even like to think of myself as edgy really, but some people think of it that way. And I don't think of myself as offensive. And here's the thing. There's a difference between people that are trying to be shocking for the sake of being shocking. Like, oh I said some shocking stuff. There's a difference between those people and the people that might be willing to explore an uncomfortable truth about human beings that an audience at first hearing it, they might go, oh, I don't, I don't want to go there. But it's not something, I'm, I'm not making it up. It's true. It's there in all of us, but we may not be comfortable with admitting it or talking about it. Right. And that's more interesting to me. I don't, I don't want to be shocking for the sake of being shocking, but I do want to explore shit that might make people uncomfortable, even though it's within all of us. That's interesting. That's a very, uh, yeah, that's a very astute distinction because I do see a lot of shock. Well, I see a lot of comedy uh, and I see yeah. a lot of like shocking comedy. And I always wonder if, if, is this just for the performance of being shocking? Like, like I know that, I know that's that's everything to a lot. Of, I grew up in Mississippi, so imagine my peer group. You know, everything is just about being shocking. You know, and yeah, like, yeah. It's like, okay, I understand that mentality, but also, yeah, I I like the thoughts that really mess me up and make me, you know, obsess over over certain ideas, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah hearing something like that so that being your drive to get to you know to putting out stuff to changing how do you feel like maybe not if you're not in a position now but do you feel like you're working towards being in a position where the things you say can possibly change the framing of certain arguments on like a global scale or a national scale you know what I mean? Because like yeah, the yeah. framing and you know, people when when people are doing these political debates or whatever, it's literally just about how their facts are framed and whether or not they have a shared premise of, you know, factual info and whatnot. So like the things that you say in your comedy, the way humor is, is that it, it allows you to explore taboo ideas, things that are shocking, mm -hmm. but in a way that's not um, heavy. You know yeah yeah so i mean that's nice but i don't know if it's helpful to think of it that way it might make you a little bit too conceited as a performer okay but it's like oh i'm saying things that are gonna be part of the cultural or national conversation you can't you can't think about that because if you do then it 
it changes the intention behind what you're doing. Okay. You know what I mean? No, well, you're not trying to do it for a specific result. Like, I'm not trying to uh, influence national conversation. I'm looking for the artistry in my craft and the clarity of communicating an idea to an audience. And if for some reason that becomes a thing that people enjoy so much, they want to use it in a different context, that's fine. But I don't think that's ever the goal for an artist or any performer of any kind. So what is the goal? Uh, you know, I think comedy might be the end all be all. Explain. I, I kind of, I probably agree with you. Please explain. Okay. Meaning, okay, I'll get a little bit dark for a second, right? Please. Life is, uh, it's not a very pleasant thing, right? Just the idea of life, straightforward. You get here, you go through some suffering, and then you die. And then in between that journey of being here and suffering and dying, there's moments of joy, there's moments of bliss, there's moments of pleasure, there's things you enjoy. You have family, you have friends, you have things that make you happy. But all of that happiness exists within a deep darkness. So I think it's the responsibility of everybody to find something that gives you joy and makes your life more bearable. For me, that thing is telling jokes to an audience. That's the thing that makes me the happiest, right? right? So once you find that thing inside of you, where like, and that existed from the beginning of time. There would be some guy who goes to the town square and then yells shit out for an hour and then he goes home. That's just what he does. Yeah. And then now we have a different version of it. It's a little bit more polished. You get a microphone, you get a stage, blah, blah, blah. But that's just the thing you do that makes your life have some meaning. Because I think life is kind of meaningless. You have to find your meaning. So that's why that's what I meant by a comedy is the end all be all. It's just the thing that makes my life meaningful. I don't think it's changing the world. I think it's maybe helping other people have some joy and it's helping them cope with the darkness of the world. But there's no goal outside of that. The goal is this makes me happy. Yeah. And hopefully it makes some other people happy and that's enough for me. You know, the fame and the fortune obviously are gonna be in the back of your head because you're a human being, but that's never the goal, really. There are tons of miserable, famous and rich people. That's not your goal. Your goal is to make the thing that make you happy. That's it. The thing that bring you joy. Wow, well said. Well said. What? How did you know? How long after doing comedy did you know that it made that it would make you happy or did make you happy? Because obviously it couldn't have been initially, or was it? Well, I knew I loved it a lot. I knew I just, that's just something I wanted to do, right? And then I developed the courage to do it. I wrote five minutes of material that I practiced in front of my mirror. It's, it's the stupidest thing, but you have to do it. I would just stand in front of the mirror and be like, so, hey, how you doing? All right. And then it's, it's dumb as fuck, but that's just how you got to start. So I went and did it that first night, and I got some chuckles. 
you know, nobody starts out great. I got yeah. some chuckles, but those chuckles were enough for me to feel like I'm in. Like I found it. This is the thing. I'm in. Wow. Yeah. So I'm in. I'm in. That gave you clarity of purpose at a time you were what, 22 ish? Yeah, 22, 23. Yeah. So having that kind of clarity of purpose at 22, 23, how did it inform your decision making as your decision, like differently than you were decision making before, like having moved here? Well, that decision became the final decision in a long line of revelations, if you want to use that word, or things that have happened before. Because okay. I, I sort of, I sort of had an existential crisis before I decided to do comedy, and it came as a result of uh, the earthquake in Haiti. Okay. Because I was in college trying to do the thing where, like, I get a degree and I get a job at a fancy place. I wear a suit every day and then I send money to my cousins back home. That was the thing, the path. Even though I already, I had all those ideas and artistic thoughts in my head I, I didn't have the example of an artist in my culture someone that encapsulated my drive the way George Carlin did I didn't have that yet so I just was gonna do the thing and make money and then the earthquake happened and that shifted my whole view on life because when you watch basically everything you know get destroyed within like five to ten seconds it's like fucks with you it's like, all right so what what are we doing here because this thing is pretty fragile it can go away at any moment so i don't know if i should be doing stuff just to make money or just to make my parents happy yeah. as opposed to me finding my own little moment of meaning and joy. That's, that's really what it became. Like I have this thing that I like to do because I discovered George Carlin and it really clicked with me. I'm like, uh -huh. I might as well do it because I could die at any moment. And I would be kind of, I, I really got to the point where I thought to myself, if I died without doing comedy, I would be really mad at myself. That's what it became. Wow, okay. Did you just jump like all in at that point after that thought came in or did you? Once I had the thought, I just had to plan around it. And so I planned, I got a job somewhere, I saved some money and then I moved to New York. I'm, I wrote the jokes, practiced them. I moved to New York on a, on a Monday, on a Tuesday, I went to my first open mic, paid $5, signed my name, put it in the bucket and then you did the thing. And then I was like, okay. I just did stand-up comedy. This was not just a bucket list thing. This is a thing that I thought I wanted to do. And then that five minutes on stage just confirmed that I actually made the right choice. So I'm all in. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then after that decision, it was a series of revelations. Yeah. After that decision, it became, it became learning the craft learning the craft and the beauty of it. And then, then there's the bullshit of the, the industry and the emptiness of the term making it. 
Yeah. If I'm being perfectly honest with you, my first two or three years of doing comedy were fucking amazing because at that time, the pleasure was in, oh, I got a new joke. And I was able to make it funny and it works. I'm just learning. Like when you're learning to do a new thing, you feel like a child. Yeah. It's just that innocent joy. Like, like, oh, yeah, I'm just learning a new craft and it's fucking amazing. And then now I got to a point where I'm like, all right, I'm proficient enough at this. So how do I make money? Boom. Yeah. And that's why it fucks everything up. <laughs> that's where everything goes away. There's no joy anymore. Now it becomes, oh, then I got to, all right, how do I get on this show? How do I try to do JFL? How do I sign up for this? Now the, the, the thoughts of you got to make it. Yeah. And that puts you in a prison of like careerism. Like you're just trying to make it as opposed to I'm having fun and learning a new things. So hopefully like the, 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 the challenge is trying to balance those two now. We're like trying to balance the love of this thing and the joy of, of it. Like you get so excited when you find a new joke and mix that up with a little bit of some business savvy and trying to make your name so you can live off the thing. Because ultimately to me, that's the, that's the, that's the goal. That's the happiness, right? Yeah. If you can live off the thing that makes you happy, then your life is perfect. I don't need to be Kevin Hart. I don't need to be Jeff Bezos. I just want to pay my rent consistently with comedy and go to any town in America and find two, 300 people that want to listen to my shit. Then I'm good to go, man. Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing like a Dave Chappelle interview where he was he was talking about his conversation with his dad, and he's like, "Yeah, being a success in comedy, it's like, how much does a teacher make as a salary? All right, twenty four thousand. Right. All right, if I can right. twenty four thousand with comedy, that's success. Um, exactly, exactly. So that being said, are you? Um, I'll I'll ask this question in like the comedy jargon way. Are you mm -hmm. a um, Are you a full time comedian? Uh, no, no, I've, I've made some decent money, but I mean, especially now. Right. Yeah. But before I was getting close. Yeah. Before quarantine happened, a lot of my money was coming from comedy. I was going on the road. I was like doing hours and headlining places, but I was working as a, as a handyman. Really? That's my, that's my side gig. Yeah. Really? I'm out tons of TVs in Manhattan, man. I, I put up shelves for people. I like assemble Ikea furniture. It's a cool little gig to have. That that kind of work to me is cathartic. I it's great. You? Okay. It's great. Because it's, 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 you work with your hands. And it's not some mind-numbing sitting in an office filing out data for people who you don't care about. Like, I come in, people tell me I have this thing I want to do. And then I look at it. And then I have the skills. And I have the tools. And I get it done. They pay me money. And I get the fuck out. It's very efficient. Yeah. And you get to set your own hours and your own time. And then that gives more time to think about and work on comedy. Yeah, I'm glad I was able to do it because I'm not professionally trained as a handyman. It's just stuff I picked up as a kid in Haiti because there were a lot of construction around me. So I would spend all this time near those guys and learning what they were doing. And I came here and turns out that was going to become very useful. <laughs> Freelance handyman. Yes, sir. It's great. What So... The way I guess I guess the way that is is you're doing small creative projects with 
I'm, I'm, I guess a few hour deadline. So you must get like little bits of satisfaction with each completion because it's sure. exercises are creative. Uh, yeah. For your brain. Um, do you think that changes how you view how you spend hours, like your hours, like, like creatively spending hours? Are you going to be like, well, I better be compensated for that, or that need the time I spent doing that creatively needs to be validated. Have you shifted from that mode of thinking, or shifted back to that mode of thinking, but to the mode of thinking of, I'm in a playground, you know, I'm learning a thing. I'm in a playground. There's all new skills. The human mind is a sponge, kind of thing. Yeah, well, you can be on the playground for too long, though. That's the problem. I was in the playground for the first three years, and it was great. Yeah. But the, the reality of life hits you. I, I have to pay the rent. The playground cannot pay the rent. I have to buy groceries. The playground can't do that. Playground can't do that. No, unfortunately. I wish it could, but it can't. That's just not how America or the world works. So you have to find a way to do that other stuff, which is then it becomes, how do you value yourself? How do you, because there's no blueprint for this business that we do. There's a lot of money in show business, but you can only get it when you start asking the questions or if you're around people that will tell you how to get it. Mm. Okay, I'll give you an example. I, I was at a comedy club just doing spots for like $25, $30. Just basic weekday spots, right? And then I did a spot that was great. And this guy emailed me the next day and he said, hey, man, I really love your comedy. I'm getting married in six months and we're having a pre-wedding party. Me and my wife, we both like you. Would you be willing to come and do an hour? And I was like, fuck yeah, I will. But then immediately it becomes, how much money do I ask? Cause I have no idea. Cause those guys saw me when he saw me, I got paid $30. Yeah. Cause there's no fucking way I'm going to get $30 to do a wedding and do an hour. Cause I was doing 15 minutes when he saw me. So now I reached out to, do you know, Jeffrey Joseph? No. Great comedian. He's in Canada now, like great guy, great dude. So I reached out to him and I said, what's the, how, how do you ask? How do you measure an hour of comedy? And then he just gave me a number. He said, ask for 1500 which kind of sounded a little ridiculous, but I was like, you know what? I guess I'll find out. So I asked the guy like 1500 for an hour. No negotiations. The next email was like, all right, confirmed. And then I realized I could have asked for 3000 <laughs> That's how I feel with photos. <laughs> because the people have the money. They don't, they're just all willing to give it because they like you. <laughs> But you don't have like a clear idea, so it's mm. just what it like when I when I was like s submitting for TV shows and I see the amount of money people make writing for shows. Right, it's pretty insane, man. It's a lot of money. It's like four grand yeah. a week. <laughs> yeah, four grand a week, which is unheard of, but that's just the business of it. Yeah. So yeah, you got to make the shift. You still want to be on the playground, you want, but you want to make money to survive. And I think, I think that's probably what the most successful rich people do is they just make enough money to be able to be on the playground all the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
playground keeps you young, but you can't pay the rent on the playground. You cannot, unfortunately. Um, so we got to close out soon, but one mm-hmm. last thing I want to ask you, um, and, and you probably addressed it already, but so what would you tell your younger self who doesn't know he's doing comedy, who doesn't know he's moving to America, what advice would you give that 12-year-old kid, that 15-year-old kid? Hmm. Knowing what you know now. You know, if anything, I would say, keep being curious, and if anything, be even more curious, because as a 12 15 year old kid i was i was i would go to the library all the time and i would like absorb things i used to read dictionaries that's how fucking boring i was as a kid but then you realize later in life because now i got into this profession where and dave Chappelle said this and i 100 percent agree he said that comedy is the only profession where you can use everything that you know Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember seeing him say that. Uh, on, uh, right. So, Twain thing, I think. whatever book you've read, whatever movie you've seen, whatever, like, article or magazine you read, all of that stuff that's in your head and all of the stories, all of the people you've met, all your experiences become something that can create your art. So, yeah, that's what I would say. Just keep reading dictionaries, man. Learn words and speak English. Learn languages. Just do stuff, and it'll pay off down the road. And buy Bitcoin. (laughs) Bitcoin wasn't around back then. I don't know what the equivalent would be. Do you have Bitcoin? Remember the word Bitcoin. What? Do you have it? No, but um, I was so into it. In, like, 2009, I had friends that were on, like, the dark web using the Silk Road and stuff. And my friend was telling me how to like mine it. And I had like these grad plus loans. I had a lot of extraneous money I could have used to buy Bitcoin. And I just, I think about it all, if you can. Do you have any friends that have made like serious money from it? Uh, a couple, but not friends I keep in touch with regularly. And I do have a couple of friends that when they had Bitcoin, they would just spend it. Like they would spend a lot of Bitcoin on a pizza because they could. Like it was a, you know. How do you even spend Bitcoin on a pizza, though? Uh, it just has to be agreed by by the guy delivering the pizza, and I'm sure he. That huh. Thing, interesting. Or yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things. It's like, yeah, somebody give somebody give the pizza guy the cash, but I'll give you Bitcoin. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. Yeah, but I I started doing some investing during the pandemic, and that's been pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. How's uh what Robin? Are you Robin Hood? I'm doing Robin Hood because it's 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 a good interface. They don't charge any commission, and I mean you kind of limited in some ways because you can only start trading from nine thirty and then you end at four. But I think that's enough time for me to do whatever I need to do. So Robin Hood is pretty cool. I, I think so far I've been on it for about a month. I'm up about eight hundred dollars, so it's not bad at all. That's great. Yeah, I've been on uh, E-Trade for about a month. I think I'm down about $400. <laughs> really? While you're down, what, uh, what moves have you made? Uh, it, it was, we had a, uh, Fani and I do trading together. He does, he does, a, he's, he does a lot of trading and um, he was telling me to sell something and I just, it didn't register. 
with me. So I did it later. And um, yeah. Okay. So it, how, how you doing? How you doing at it, Fanny? How good are you? Uh, I've gotten I've gotten much better. So I made like a good about seventy percent return. So I started nice. off thirty thousand about you know, the beginning of February. And now I'm like at 57,000. Oh, you're fucking killing it. Because there's so much stuff that happened between March and now. Like, what do you own? What's on your portfolio, if you don't mind me asking? Not at all. Uh, basically, I'm thinking more I'm thinking more of like, uh, you know, holding for a year or two at least. Mm -hmm. So the companies that I have right now are um, NVIDIA. They make like semiconductor chips and stuff. Mm -hmm. I've heard of them. I have this company called Crown Castle International that's involved in like 5G stuff. Okay. Basically, yeah, just anything more related to technology. I have JD.com, which is like, you know, similar to like Amazon. Right, right. China. Do you do any of the big five? I, I used to. I was, I was invested in Amazon and the Tesla thing. But the thing about that is I don't understand valuation. I don't understand how the company's growing that much right now. Like, that's yes, insane. like Tesla is insane. It's insane. They just hit $2,000 a share, which is crazy. Because like, if you think about it, in March, they were trading at like about six, $700 a share. Yeah. So like, I, I did buy Tesla, but then I sold it. When, I started, when it started going down a little bit, I didn't, I didn't hang on to it. Because I don't understand the future of Tesla and how it can operate right now. Tesla is the brand of Elon Musk and what he, what bullshit he says. Right. It's really a, a branding thing because Tesla got more valuable than all the other car companies in the world combined, including Toyota. Like, can you fucking imagine that? Right. Toyota has been around for at least a hundred years. Tesla, well, see, that's the thing with these companies that are known as disruptors. You know, they're gonna attract value. Like Tesla, I like I was reading a lot about the analysis behind the company, right? And many mm -hmm. people that were that are experts at doing these sort of things, they're, they're valuing the company at about nine hundred dollars a share. You know, like Amazon makes sense with the pandemic and everything. Yes, Amazon is huge. Yeah, it went from eighteen hundred dollars a share to now like three thousand something. That makes sense because people are using Amazon a lot more. Everybody's yeah. driving around in Tesla. Yeah, it's it's a perception thing. And I guess, I mean, they do more than cars, but even the other stuff that they do is like, they do space stuff, but it's not a public thing. No one is using Tesla to go to space. No, I accept Elon Musk. He's just using the money from the company to fund the other company. <laughs> right, it's just Elon Musk is my Jesus, and then I'm going to keep you buying know, this company. That's how people look at it. The thing I think about is like, all these super influential people and, and brands and whatever, they they create some controversy they are a victim play a victim somehow or show themselves as being victimized garner way a bunch of public support and then they just kind of surf off of that like surf off the public support okay i gotta be controversial so what was the what was the thing that made him a victim oh all the other car uh, all the other car manufacturers were able to have dealerships but tesla had to have its own dealership so it wasn't able to do that now that I think about it, I'm sure Elon Musk was like, yo, don't allow me to have dealerships in your states. <laughs> and it was right. like, you create a narrative that helps you. Right. Make me look like a victim so that I can call this 
uh, diver, na- national fucking hero diver, a pedophile. <laughs> I don't know, man. He scares the shit out of he's me. He's cute. Yo. He is cute and hot. Yeah, yeah. What's this thing he's doing where he's starting to put chips in people's brains? He calls it Neuralink. Saying they can, like, treat depression or something like that. And all Yeah, that. he was talking about that stuff with Joe Rogan, and I was like, I don't know, man. Have it's you seen that movie strange. Gamer with uh, the guy that plays Dexter playing the uh, really rich tech guy that has microchipped everybody's brain? Gamer is it was like kind of a dope concept of a movie. It was like, well, it was like, uh, yeah, it's you, you're in a, you're in the, either The Sims in real life or you're in a war movie, a war game in real life, and this guy controls everybody's microchips. Yeah, the, the the thing that scares me about it is the market is so disconnected from reality. I'm like, who are these people who are investing? Because I mean, it's got to be the top ten percent of America because the whole economy is crazy like it's on life support and then the market has had the best couple of months since the pandemic started mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense because the market should reflect I bet the no. general I, economy i bet you'll find that full list that full list is the people who bought kodak two months ago oh i made i made a little bit of money on kodak <laughs> <laughs> A friend of mine was like, this is going up. You should get in. So I, I got it the same day. I, I did a day trading. I got it, waited for three hours for it to hit what I was satisfied <laughs> with, and then I sold it, and I got my money. Yeah. See, a lot of the people are doing that on Robinhood, and that's what's making the market so crazy right now. Because yes, yeah, yes, it is. Home, you can't really spend that much money on stuff. You can't go outside. You got your food. So yeah. why not make money, right, with the money that you have? And then that's right. when started taking it off yeah yeah man, they're taking to it like as a they're taking to it as like a sports or athletic hobby you know people are having these pretty much same uh desktop setups and they're trading options and all sorts of things and fanny i think you were gonna say something regarding like the disconnect between the market and uh the economy what were you gonna say i didn't i didn't I think for the first time ever, even people who have hedge funds and stuff are shutting their shop down because they're not able to explain what's going on with the market. Some of them are losing money. You have this whole Robinhood trading that's going on. And, yeah. You know, then there's some people that are using the data from Robinhood users. So Robinhood is, even though it's free for you. They, oh, they, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, it's never fully free. Yeah. It's not fully free because they're... <laughs> How many people making so much more money off of it? And it's like people don't even realize. It. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you just said, as long as you hit your mark, you're good. You know? Yeah, so I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't play that game where like this friend of mine. He's he's got a lot more money, and uh, he gets greedy all the time. The other day he lost ten grand because he bought into this penny stock, right? And then for some reason the penny stock went up, mm-hmm. and then he got greedy instead of selling he bought some more because he wanted to double whatever he already made right and then it fucking went down and never went back up <laughs> yeah that's basically <laughs> with, uh, love and this healthcare company we were chasing this company that was making the vaccine called uh novavax okay it was going up it was going up they started making deals with japan and like uh, i think even india to distribute the vaccine and, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just started tanking. Yeah, yeah. 
and it's hard to explain. I mean, you really like um, if people are buying a stock, it goes up, and if people are selling it, it goes down. That's the basic thing, but that's that doesn't even explain a lot of the shit that's happening. I, I don't know yeah. how it works anymore. It's like like a free for all. Like people are yeah. It's like rules, and you're doing it in a certain way. But like, as long as you're not losing money right now, I think you're golden. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a um, uh, give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man a fish, feed him for a lifestyle. Learn how to make money off of teaching him how to fish. Feed your (laughs) for future generations. (laughs) There you go. There you go. There you go. That's the stock market right now. <laughs> Weird times, man. Weird fucking times. But um, yeah. So, anyways, thank you for coming on. Um, it's always a pleasure to see you, TJ. Uh, Thanks for having me, man. And hopefully, we can work on something soon because I know we've talked about it before, me and Reggie and you. But you know, we're not trying to force it. We're gonna let it happen at its own pace. Oh, and sense. then, yeah. Yeah, so you guys are all superstars. I'm just gonna end recording. Now.